This is a classic because the comedy is still relevant and it's refreshing to have old men at the butt of the joke. This is a classic because who doesn't like ghosts, devils, disguises, and the fight for love? This is the classic because it's a total laugh riot that doesn't pigeonhole the women. This is our history. This is Hello and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Gagarin, they, them. I am an ensemble member with Hedgepig, an actor and a curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Mary Candler, she, her, founder of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program from Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. And today, we are wiggling into Afra Ben's The Lucky Chance, or The Alderman's Bargain, from the Expand the Canon list, available at expandthecanon.com. If you were to go to that list... And you should. You should. You would find this pitch. So, if you're looking to gamble on love with this multi-generational comedy featuring headstrong heroines and aging Romeos, go for the lucky chance. Consider this raunchy restoration comedy about sex, marriage, and consent. The ripened spry and sometimes lecherous Sir Cautious Fullbank and Sir Feeble Fainwood used their money and status to land themselves young wives. But both wives already had young suitors they already loved, who are desperately trying to win them back. While the old men gamble, bribe, and swindle, the young suitors assume double identities, dance with the devil, and put their livelihoods on the line, with plenty of help from their crafty ladies. Delight in this unapologetic critique of capitalism and patriarchy while asking, are our motives in love and partnership ever truly altruistic? Legacy. So, since that sounds like an absolutely wild ride. And it is, it is. Oh my god, so then please, Mary, tell me more. Tell me more. I want more. I want the deets. I want the hot goss. I want to know what's going on. Yes, I'm going to do my best here because as you may imagine, there's a lot of stuff going on in this play and I'm going to try to just smooth it down for us a little bit. Here we are. Yes, it is the age-old tale of women being forced to marry bad matches. And this time, we are focusing on youthful, fiery ladies married to old, senile men. And of course, comedy and hijinks ensue. We basically focus on two couples. We have our true love couple, um, I'm calling them that, Belmore and Letizia. And we have our lusty and practical couple, Gaiman and Julia. You mean the horny ones. Yes, the, let's, let's call them the horny ones, yes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> very sex positive comedy. Yes. The problem is that each of these women is either married to or promised to an old creeper, basically. So Letizia is about to be married to, wait for it, Sir Feeble Fainwood, an alderman. <laughs> Which, like, that's so definitely like a dick joke. It is a great dick joke, and it just happens over and over and over again. Sir Feeble Fainwood. Fainwood. (laughs) 
always so me. feeble. <laughs> it really, really kills me. So we've got that couple. We've also got Julia, who is already married to Sir Cautious Fullbank, a mm. banker. Pretty straightforward there. So we learn that Belmore and Letizia were in, like, for real love. And they were engaged to one another and all those, like, roses and hearts and whatever. And through some mishap, Belmore was accused of a crime he did not commit. And he was exiled. So he's out. He's out. And he's out there trying to get his pardon, trying to fix this all. But somehow a report comes back to Letizia that Belmore has been hanged. Oh, so one thing that I do love so much about this is like a little detail is mm-hmm. that when Belmore comes back and finds out that he, um, he Leticia thinks he's dead, his friend Gaiman tells him that the reason they think he's dead is because apparently he killed a cheesemonger in Holland, <laughs> which they consider <laughs> to be a king. So he was hanged for killing a king. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, do not, do not kill my cheesemonger. I'm serious about my cheese. Uh, That brie is to die for, and (laughs) you will. And you will. Um, So, of course, Letizia is devastated by this cheesemonger news, but more importantly, (laughs) devastated by the hanging of her beloved. So she's pretty low. And in this state of devastation, Sir Feeble swoops in and convinces her to just, like, marry him. Which, like, she does, but really just because she has no freaking other options in this day and age. She's, like, got to hitch up with someone for her own security and protection. Mm. Um, so then, ta-da, Belmore, not dead, spoiler, has come back into town, and he's disguised, and he confronts Letizia, but oh no, it's too late. Or is it? She has just legally married Fainwood. But they have not yet consummated that relationship. (laughs) And that is a big deal at this time. Mm -hmm. So if Belmore can simply secure his pardon before that really gross, gross, grody old man deed is done, he can show the world that he is in fact not dead and that his engagement to Letizia supersedes this sham marriage. So he disguises himself and stays very close. Meanwhile, we have a lot of very cringy but hilarious scenes where this like old totter fainwood is getting really revved up to consummate with oh Letizia. Super grody, but also basically hilarious. Fainwood is like our cringe king of <laughs> yes. this play. I mean, like Cautious Fulbeck is also like a little bit cringy, but he's just like silly. Fainwood is like I, you could write tweets of this man's like dialogue. You could, and they would go viral. Um, so Letitia and Belmore are just using a lot of trickery to avoid the consummation actually happen. There's some real great zinger lines in there about all of this. And we do get, let's be real, uncomfortably close a few times. But in the midst of all of this, somehow we learn that Fainwood was actually the guy that wrote the letter that was like, Belmore's dead. <laughs> and uh, he was also super sneaky. And he was like, I know, I'm also going to go to the king and get the pardon for Belmore. So yeah. if he actually actually shows up and wants the pardon it's like too late it's already being given which seems really like bureaucratic bullcrap but you know that's how he's doing it truly it's like well also that's so much of the thing with this play is these older dudes like 
working the system entirely to their yes. advantage and like yes. what a like fucking incel long haul way to handle this of being like okay so i'm gonna get him accused of this crime and then he's gonna get exiled and then i'm gonna pretend that he's dead and then i'm gonna get his pardon before anyone else like dude get a day job <laughs> <laughs> no i know and also just like you know old white men using the system to their advantage that doesn't happen anymore oh no everyone no. is equal it's sunshine everyone. and daisies Yes. So what is crazy, though, is because Belmore's disguised in his household pretending to be Fainwood's nephew, he actually is like, look, I've got the pardon right here. Want to take a look at it? And Belmore thinks, hmm, a lucky chance. Here's my pardon. <laughs> um, uh, so there we have it. There we have it. Now, concurrent to all of these hijinks, we also have Julia who is a very level-headed, practical person who just wants some nice things. And she has married Fullbank for basically stability, but fully intends to take many lovers to make her as happy as she can be. And then she will marry for love after this old bloke kicks the bucket, more Hell or less. Oh, yeah, she will. Julia is yes. such a girl boss. Yes. Yes, she does what she wants. And she's just like, this is a system I'm working in, and this is how I'm going to play it. Mm. Now, Gaiman would really like to be that lover and that future husband, and he spends his entire fortune wooing Julia. So he's trying to hide the fact that he is now completely bankrupt, living in poverty, and owes a ton of money to, of course, Julia's husband, Fullbank the banker. Yeah, it's something like... 600 pounds or something like that and it's also like so crazy how i mean you know i i made the joke about cringe king earlier but gaiman is like simp king because <laughs> he's just out here he's like he is balls to the walls for julia at all moments of time well except for when he thinks there's an old lady. But. Exactly, except for when he's like, mm, this serves me better. We'll get to that. We're getting to that. So Julia thinks that all of this behavior is pretty irresponsible, and she wants to both help Gaiman get out of this kind of debt without hurting his soft little pride, but he, she also wants him to be honest with her and sees this as an opportunity to test his constancy to her. So she's got this whole plot. She sets up a scene of devils and ghosts, you know, dress up, to present loads of money to Gaiman, which she has, of course, taken from Fullbank's safe, if he agrees to revel with the spirits later. <laughs> now, Gaiman is not Ooh. a total dum-dum. He's not like, whoa, they're ghosts and devils. Instead, he's like, hey, I'm pretty hot shit, and I imagine that some old lady who won't reveal her face, must be really into me. And she's going to pay me for my uh, <clears throat> services. Slut. So, Slut yeah. alert. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's like, sure. So he intends this revel of devils and demons and gets very intimate with what he assumes is an old, raggedy old lady. <laughs> but regardless, he gets some money. So he does this whole devil's dance and he gets some cash dollars. Now, then he's like, boop, boop, boop. Hey, Julia, great news. I've got all this cash now. Things are going good. He pretends it's like from an inheritance. And Julia is like, um, tell me the truth about this. Where did this money come from? Which, of course, he does not. 
So then Gaiman is like, okay, I'm going to pay off my debts. Hey, Fullbank, I got the money. But Fullbank likes to be in control of people. So he's like, no, I wanted you indebted to me. And so instead he's like, instead of paying that off right now, let's sit down at the gambling table. And Gaiman fleeces Fullbank in gambling, totally. And then Fullbank's like getting really precious about his coins, right? He does not like to move money. So Gaiman's like, I have a better idea. Instead of putting more money on the table, why don't you gamble a night with your wife? Gross. What? Gross on his what? end, Gaiman. Come on. What, 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 what? So, um, whatever. We're going to move past how grody that is. But Gaiman wins. It is another lucky chance. Wow. It's also so funny how in that scene, Fullbank is like, a night with my wife? Makes me a cuckold, which, like, the number one fear of these older dudes is to get turned into cuckolds. But he's like, well, I lose 300 coins or I become a cuckold. Yeah. And he's like, "Eh, I'd rather save the money. Thank you. (laughs) Which is like... Value systems get get very revealed here. Very revealed. It's like, dude, what the hell? So Fullbank basically delivers Gaiman to Julia's room to have his way with her. Gross, 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 gross. Okay, we'll have to deal with that in production. When mm. all is revealed, though, we learn that Julia was, in fact, the woman at the center of that devil's dance. And when she learns that Gaiman was given free reign of her by her husband, she rails on Fullbank and really uses this to her advantage. She's like, you did a gross thing. And now for that act, I am never coming in your bed again. So it's a little convoluted. It's a little icky at times. But everyone does get what they want in the end here. Yeah. And you know what? It's so funny because both of the old men end up being cuckolds and they're both kind of like, well... I guess we're old and we should just deal with that. Yeah, I know. It's like, I love like the um, contrition at the end. They're both just kind of like, hmm, I guess old senile men with dysfunctional dicks shouldn't really marry young feisty things. My bad. (laughs) So that's basically it. A couple other things that I wanted to note is that we've got another character, Diana, who I didn't mention in this. She's also a complete badass, and her plot is also really full of agency and confidence, and you should absolutely read the play to meet her. I also want to side note that while this play focuses on kind of three couples, cuckoldry, and forced marriage, there are truly some killer comedic scenes for the two old dudes. Absolutely baller balls to the walls there's an excellent the scene in um act three where it's all the groping around in the dark room and the like (laughs) who's who like there's so much excellent excellent opportunity for not just strong comedy but interesting staging like there's a lot of this play that you can play with in the way of setting or time i feel like this is one of those plays that could be really fun if you like put it in like a warehouse rave Mm-hmm. And it's like, why <laughs> yeah, are there two like old daddies in their 60s at the warehouse <laughs> rave? But they're here, you know? Yeah, truly, truly, truly. So if you've got two older comedic actors in your company who are open to comedically humiliating themselves, this is going to be a real hit. Yeah. Um, something I do want to mention, and I said briefly uh, something about this in the plot, is like, like so many plays of this time, 
issues of consent really don't hold up to contemporary scrutiny. Mm. And this really does need to be handled thoughtfully, especially in scenes between Julia and Gaiman, where they are getting intimate without knowing with whom they are getting intimate. I do think that this play gives some opportunities to deal with that in a way that isn't super cringy to a modern audience. And in comparison to many other kind of sex comedies of this time, I think this play... It gives you an opportunity to deal with it thoughtfully and just move on in a way that mm, that works today. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, if you look in the grand scheme of Offer Ben's work um, and her themes of consent or lack thereof in many of her other works, like, you know, when we talk about The Rover and those kinds of plays, this one is by far, I think, the most, well, it's not G-rated, but it's G-rated in terms of... <laughs> Bad interaction with consent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Offer Ben writes sex plays at a she time does. where, like, it's amazing that a woman playwright, and we'll talk about how she was potentially the first um, professional woman playwright, she's just, like, putting sex on stage, and let me tell you, it upset a lot of people. Oh, yeah. People did not want to see the girlies get it, and Offer Ben was only ever about the girlies getting it. Legacy. There are a lot of things about this play that make it so, so strong and such a great opportunity for, you know, your restoration comedic comedy. Um, mm-hmm. I think one thing about this play that, like, I, it was so funny because when I first started reading it, um, the pacing is incredible. Every scene, there are laughs, there are turns, and she does a really, really good job of balancing the amount of stage time between... Uh, Belmore and Leticia and Gay Man and Julia. So you're you're getting a good amount of both plot lines. So they're always interchanging and it's always being kept interesting. And then you also have the great job of Diana's B-plot to just help amp up the pacing and the stakes of the events. I really, really agree. It's a very well-structured play. And I also want to shout out right now that we have a cut of this play on our website that Emily Lyon, our artistic director, created that really just helps streamline some stuff, you know, gets rid of some of the antiquated language that doesn't land anymore today. And I really recommend that you check out that cut. It's uh, very performable. Very performable and also, like, not a three-hour Merry Wives of Windsor kind of vibes. Yeah, we'll keep yeah. It, we'll keep although it you do get some Merry Wives of Windsor vibes with that Diana plot where it's like, yeah. all right, who's getting married to who? I don't know, but eventually these two people end up together. <laughs> True facts. Mm-hmm. Something that I really appreciate about this play also is, you know, you've got these three tracks, these three women who all want to have their own way in love, but they're all really different. So mm. Letizia is more of your like, ingenue, in love, like, oh, Romeo and Juliet plot, we must be together, where Julia is so practical and, like, sex positive and wants a very different kind of relationship in her life. And Diana also is just, like, I don't even care about what my dad says. Like, she's, like, the rebellious one. Mm. So I really appreciate that we have three different types of women, that we don't just have, like, three flighty ingenues do you know what i mean yeah and they're all really really grounded in like Mm -hmm. their wants and their desires you know i mean i think that leticia is like while she is 
you know, sort of like that flowy, loving, leading from the heart kind of ingenue, you know, you don't get that like empty headed vibe from her. You don't get empty head vibes from any of these women, but especially not from Leticia, who I think would be the one that you would assume would behave in that way. You know, she's mm-hmm. really smart in the way that she deals with uh, Feeble Fainwood. And she's really, really like doing her work to sort of work her way around this and make the best of her situation. And it's really exciting. And what I, so Julia, I think is by far my favorite of the three gals, which like, mm-hmm. I don't know, she strikes me as a Capricorn. So I, I'm <laughs> are we both that. Capricorns here on this podcast? Oh my God, today? Yes, we are both Capricorns on this podcast. You, me, and Julia holding and, down. Whoa, holding it down. Goats Earth for energy. all time. Well, <laughs> so like that's my, my, I think probably my favorite scene with Julia is when she and Fullbank are talking about cuckoldry and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to fucking cuckold you. You think I'm going to sleep with you? No, I want young lovers and I want men who are going to be exciting for me. And like, yeah, I'm married to you because you give me things that I like and you pay for my lifestyle. But like, this is not this is not about the sex for me. And I'm probably not going to fuck you, which is like I. Yes, I am so glad you brought up that scene because I almost forgot about it. But it is one of my favorite scenes in the play because it's just such mm-hmm. a frank conversation about like so I'm kind of uh, in this marriage and I plan to do x y and z so deal with it <laughs> yeah which is so badass and also like so good for her and the way that also that she like just makes gaiman run around in just circles chasing after her is mm-hmm. so much fun to watch i think because like if anything gaiman is like the empty headed bimbo of yes. this cast. Well, also Feeble Fainwood, but he's empty-headed in a different way. Oh. More like senility is perhaps set in a bit. That is a good way to look at it. Well, also, <laughs> so let's talk about the old men and how, yeah. uh, like, their whole vibe of, like, the cuckoldry and all of this kind of stuff. Because they are, so this play doesn't really have antagonists, but I think you could argue that they are our main antagonists. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, like, we we mentioned in the beginning about how this play is also sort of a comment on capitalism and class. And I think it's really interesting to watch the way that money, very similar to sort of, like, the level of power that these old men have, is empty. It's empty. It's meaningless. You know, uh, the money and the gifts that uh, Fullbank showers on Julia, I think that she likes them and she likes nice things, but you don't see her, like, that being a huge selling point, you know? She would just rather have, like, a steady way of being. And also it's, like, gay men never has money, and Belmore never really seems to have money either. It's this whole idea of, like, all the power and the will being concentrated towards old men. I mean, you know, you had um, Feeble going behind everyone's backs and manipulating the bureaucracy to get Belmore's part in, and then you have Fullbank, who is manipulating everyone with all of these monies and these debts, because he's got, there's also, um, like, the serving men, there's, like, also, like, a little, there's, like, a few lines that are thrown in there about how Fullbank sort of has, like, all of these people in his pocket, because he's got so many people indebted to him as the banker, and, like, that this is the way in which these men control people, but ultimately, this it doesn't actually earn them anything because they lose they lose at the end they lose their wives they still have all their money but like they're clearly not as happy 
It's all about ownership, it Mm -hmm. seems like. You know, like who do they own? What do they own? The treasures, the people, what have you. And ultimately, they have to start ranking what they value. And we learn learn where Julia is on that ranking. She's definitely behind the silver chest. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like it's, you know, I think that's one of those, that scene in particular is kind of lovely because it just so perfectly encapsulates that idea of like women being property that we've seen Mm -hmm. in so Mm -hmm. many other places before. And also because it's like Gaiman is supposed to be Julia's love interest. By all uh, means, we should be excited about this opportunity for him, but we're not because he's treating her like a piece of meat to be one the same way that Fullbank is. Yep. Absolutely. You know, it's, there's like so much to talk about in terms of like consent and ownership and capitalism and um, women's rights and voices and agency. Mm. Um, at the same time, I want to step back and just say like, this is a floof piece. <laughs> this True piece facts. is a yeah. hilarious floof comedy. So that's also what's exciting about it because it's a floof comedy where you actually have some backbone to it at the same time. Yes. No, totally. I mean, you know, we can really get into the serious aspects of the themes in this play. But they are, they, Offer Ben does a really lovely job of having them kind of like float on the undersurface because that scene with the dice and the betting on Julia is actually really funny too because she also comes mm-hmm. over and is like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Okay. It's, it's fine. Nothing to see here. <laughs> truly. And like everyone has their opportunity for comedy. Gaiman has lots of opportunities for coming for comedy. Um, you also know, we've talked coming, about but- <laughs> Yes, I know. I, I was like, babe, Gaiman's coming. Oh, he's trying. Um, and like Julia is funny, but then there's also like all of these little side characters. The world of this play is incredibly rich. Yeah, I think it's a really satisfying read. I will say I just want to see it on stage now. Oh. I have not had the opportunity to see this on stage. Could you be that opportunity? I think I think you can, dear listener. Get it going. Get get these bad boys out there. Please stop doing the rover and do this play instead. Yeah, truly. I mean, it's one of those things, and I haven't read the rover in a little bit, and I I understand why it gets done. There's a lot of complexities and a million characters. This is Mm. A, a smaller cast. I think you can do this. You could maybe get away with doing this with eight to ten actors, I think. So, like, ever so slightly on the side of a smaller classical play cast. And it's hilarious, and you don't have to deal with, like, jokes about rape, like I think is what you have to deal with in the rover all the time. Yeah, three times. Three separate Mm. occasions you have to deal with that on, like, an intense level. Whereas, like, with this, it is, as we said, a sexy little fluff piece. Yes. That is going to be funny and enjoyable and all that kind of great stuff. Beautiful. I also, okay, I did come up with a drinking game for this play. Please, please let us know what the drinking game is for this play. You got to take a shot every time Mm -hmm. Sir Feeble Fainwood says, odds bobs. (laughs) Odds bobs, odds bobs. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of just vocal sounds that come out of Feeble Fainwood. And that's like his favorite one. And he's got like three different variations. And if you play this game seriously, dear listener, uh, that's 22 shots. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to you're going to be annihilated by the end of this show. Which, you know what? I think is what 
is what, uh, well, at least probably what Gaiman would want. I don't know. He seems like that kind of a party boy. You know, it feels in the spirit. It feels, we've got drunk Shakespeare out there. Why can't we have drunk Offra Ben? Blackout Offra Ben. Blackout Ben. <laughs> Blackout. Blackout Ben. <laughs> yes, Blackout Ben. Um, do what you will with that, producers across the country. <laughs> do what you will. Get your liquor license. It'll be good. History. So we've been talking about Afra, and we've we've we have thrown some shade at Miss Bain, but she was also a really cool gal who was alive during a time where women didn't really get to do anything. Uh, so Mary, please please tell me about Afra's life and what she's Let been me. up to. I would be delighted to. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, so Afra is an English playwright, yes, born mm. in 1640 and died in 1689. And she is known as the first woman in the world to make her living solely off of writing. That is the first woman professional playwright. At least this is the first recorded woman to do so in England. At least I don't want to say definitively that that is true. I'd love to know someone earlier. But that is kind of the – that is her claim to fame. Yeah, and it's also been the thing that sort of has like put her on the map in our our current cultural sphere. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. Now, there's a lot of guesswork with her bio. Mm. Um, Some of it is quite exciting. And there are some people that think that kind of the mystery around her bio is intentional because of what we're going to talk about in a second. But take all of this with a grain of salt and just get excited for whatever you like. (laughs) So she is most likely to have been born to the Johnsons of Canterbury. And her father was then appointed lieutenant governor of Suriname where she and her family lived for a time. So really interesting. Already out of England, seeing a new world. Mm. She returned back to England and took up the surname Ben or Bane, however you like to say that, likely because she was married at the time. Perhaps we think to a Dutchman. That is important for later. Her husband dies shortly thereafter, leaving her in need of a way to support herself. And this is where things get exciting. Afraban was appointed as a spy by King Charles II to gather intelligence from the Dutch. Oh, double agent. An actual spy. Her code name was Austria, which actually she published a number of works under the name Austria as well. Um, But I think it's a really sexy little code name that she's got. Spy name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. She like really came out with that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder who came up with it. Was she assigned? No, I'm sure she came up with it because she's oh, a writer. <laughs> um, so King Charles paid for a trip for her to go to Antwerp for the spying, specifically to turn a Dutch spy into a double agent for England. But lore suggests that not everything went well. You know, it cost her a lot of money to, like, support herself while she was in Antwerp. And by the time she needed to come home, the king was tired of paying her bill and would not give her money for the return trip. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Dick move. What a jerk. So she had to borrow money to get back to England in 1666. And then she was thrown into debtor's prison. What? That was a thing. Yes. She had no money, so she went to prison for debtors. That's ridiculous. Yes. And this is where she began writing, because she was like, man, I got to figure out how to make some money. So she's in debtor's prison, writing furiously, and she truly clawed herself from debtor's prison to a reasonable level of success at the time. We Mm. assume she was released from prison, like, within two years, because by 
1670, her first play, The Forced Marriage, thematically also relevant to what this play is about, was performed in London. So thrown in jail and wrote her way out of it. Crazy. She did it. So she wrote copiously and she wrote to survive as an unmarried woman, paying her way in the world. And, you know, we've mentioned this before. Her most successful play was The Rover in 1681. Mm. And I would guess this is still her most performed play today. Not that it gets a ton of performance, but just... I've heard of people doing the rover, oh, although yeah. I suggest taking a look at the Lucky Chance. Mm. Um, she was, of course, often criticized for simply being a woman as a playwright. Um, and she boldly rose to meet a lot of those challenges and push back on them and wrote many, many, many very well-received plays in London, most of them on the theme of forced marriages. Hey, as something hey. that she's probably really familiar with because also like you think about it like how many other women did she have to watch go through that she got to be single but that was such a rare thing to see in Mm -hmm. that time and like she had to deal with the adversity of it but a lot of her other friends were just trapped in the bondage of their society and a patriarchy (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed and so it's interesting to think it's like well she had the luxury of being thrown in debtor's prison because she was unmarried. But it gave her the opportunity to, you know, develop her craft and make her way in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As she got older, writing became much harder for her. She could barely hold a pen at a certain point. I'm guessing arthritis. It's just my personal guess. But she wrote Lucky Chance towards the end of her career. And this play received a lot, 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 lot of sexist criticism. As we've noted, it's a very sexy play, and that was, like, not necessarily cool for a woman to be writing um, at the time. So when she published this play, she added this very long defense of women writers as a preface to the play. So if you can find yourself an old copy of this, you'll notice there's this whole diatribe and defense of her and her other female writers. Oh, word. Go off. Yeah. Yeah. So um, also you could like stage that maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Later in life, she started writing prose primarily and translating French and Latin texts. And then she died at age 48. So she accomplished all of this. She was a spy. She was a successful writer. She published novels by 48. And she's actually buried at Westminster Abbey. So if you go to Westminster Abbey, just know she's not in the poet's corner. She's somewhere else. So you'll have to dig a little bit more to find her. Something I really love is that the inscription on her tombstone reads, Here lies a proof that wit can never be defense enough against mortality. Ooh. <laughs> I, would, I believe she wrote that. I love that idea that that's uh, her words. But maybe it's someone else giving her high praise. Hey, sounds like it. Yeah. So posthumously, her work was not considered great literature by the gatekeepers that be for quite a long time. Um, Her work was considered to be pretty light and lewd. And again, as I've said a million times, um, made some folks very uncomfortable to see women's pleasure on stage, um, which she did not shy away from. But in the 20th century, scholars have taken another look. Many works were republished, and there has been a celebration of her work as really offer as a trailblazer, a woman forced to write like a man to be successful, and a writer not scared to put female pleasure on stage. Hell yeah. Little shout out to another writer on our list. Scholar Edmund Gross remarked that she was the Georges Sand 
of the Restoration. Oh. Mmm, liking it. So go check out our George Sand on the on the list as well. Excellent play. Some other kind of more contemporary references here is in Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, she says, All women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afraben, which is most scandalously, but rather appropriately, in Westminster Abbey, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. Wow, that's actually, that's really high praise. Shout out from Virginia Woolf. Um, currently, I'm not really sure the status of that. There is a movement afoot to raise a statue to her in Canterbury. I'm unclear if this has happened yet, if it's still in progress. So if you are in Canterbury, please let us know. Snap a pic. We want to see it. We want to see her in her glory. So that's all for Ben. I mean, um, uh, you know, a trailblazer, a spy, a sex positive writer. A girl boss if there ever was one. Indeed. Indeed. Beautiful. (laughs) I feel like a piece of this is just going to turn into me calling, oh, well, you know what? No, not all of our playwrights are girl bosses, but Offer Ben <laughs> is definitely in, in that category, I think. Indeed. Indeed. Everyone has to have a tagline on this on this uh, podcast. So if yours is girl boss, cool. Girl boss. <laughs> so here is a recording from our filmed scene from The Lucky Chance performed by me as Gaiman, and Rachel Schmeling as Julia. How now? What? Departing? You are going to the bride chamber. No matter. You shall stay. I hate to have you in a crowd. Can you deny me? Will you not give me one lone hour in the garden? Mm -hmm. What? And tantalize each other with dull kisses and part with the same appetite as we met? No, madam. Besides, I have business. Some assignation? Is it so, indeed? Uh, away! You cannot think me such a traitor, no. Tis most important business. Tis too late for business. Let tomorrow serve. Nay, madam. The gentleman is to go out of town. Rise the earlier then. But, madam, the gentleman lies dangerously sick. And should he die? Mm, tis not a dying uncle, I hope, sir. Um, the gentleman a-dying, and to go out of town tomorrow. Aye, madam, in a liter. Tis his fancy. Change of air may recover him. Hmm. So may your change of mistress do me. Sir, farewell. But stay, Julia. Devil, you shall tempt me no more. I'll love and be undone. But she is gone, and if I stay, the most that I shall gain is but a reconciling look or kiss. No, my kind goblin, I'll keep my word with these least evil. Though a tantalizing woman is worse than devil. You can find a film scene from this play on our website featuring me and Rachel Schmeling, directed by Raphael Massey. Special thanks to our director of photography, Jenny DeRossiers, sound designer, Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager, Jessica Fournier. A special thank you to Stephen Beck for his editing prowess on this episode of This is a Classic. 
Thank you for joining us for our The Lucky Chance by Afra Ben episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, or professor. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. And Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Gagarin. And I'm Mary. Bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>